0: Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. Today on the program, we're going to check in with CAPSA, a domestic violence, sexual abuse, and rape recovery center serving Cache County and the Bear Lake area. CAPSA's Misty Hewitt says that rates of domestic violence are up during the pandemic. We'll talk about services, reporting abuse, and healing from trauma, among other topics. We're also going to check in with Hillary Renshaw from USU's Office of Equity. That office addresses cases of sexual misconduct and discrimination at USU. In this episode of Access Utah is made possible with support from the Utah Women's Giving Circle, a grassroots community with everyday philanthropists, raising the questions and raising the funds to empower Utah women and girls. Information available at utawomensgivingcircle.com. Hope you join us for these two conversations following the news.
1: This episode of Access Utah is made possible with support from the Utah Women's Giving Circle, a grassroots community with everyday philanthropists raising the questions and raising the funds to empower Utah women and girls. Information available at utahwomensgivingcircle.com.
0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we're going to check in with CAPSA, a domestic violence, sexual abuse, and rape recovery center serving Cache County in the Bear Lake area. CAPSA's Misty Hewitt says that rates of domestic violence are up during the pandemic. We're going to talk about services, reporting abuse, and healing from trauma, among other topics. We're also, this hour, going to check in with Hillary Renshaw from USU's Office of Equity. That office addresses cases of sexual misconduct and discrimination at USU. Uh, We first uh, uh, go to our conversation with Misty Hewitt, who is Social Services Director at CAPSA. All right. Well, we want to check in, you know, CAPSA in general and uh, services, um, but in specific, uh, what the pandemic has has done. I think I understand from previous conversation with you that uh, things are pretty busy there at CAPS these days. (laughs)
2: Yeah, unfortunately, they are. Um, there's really been a tremendous impact from COVID-19 on our organization. Um, as, as we mentioned, there's been an increase in calls. Um, really, in mid-March, we, when all of this began, we quickly developed some ways to communicate and continue to provide our confidential services through um, just figuring out how to do confidential video calls Things like telehealth allowing us to maintain our shelter, our therapy, and our case management services. And, um, and really with that, working on planning um, specific guidelines for our shelter and the wellness of our staff and our organization, and working through some of the guidelines from the state and CDC and things like that. Um, and so we knew that there was going to be a significant increase in domestic violence Um, If you think about the dynamics of domestic violence, there's a lot of um, isolation and fear, the unknown, all of those kinds of things, including the increase in stress and financial employment. And so we knew that that was going to increase our calls. But the challenge with COVID I think we're finding is opposite from a natural disaster when something happens and then it's over and you rebuild. Right now there's no clear timeline and it's causing a lot of ongoing stress and worry. So we just continue to see an increase in the calls for help and um, we're definitely in the process of navigating that and getting creative to figure out how to help the clients that we're working with that are in the midst of experiencing domestic violence but also navigating this whole pandemic.
0: Uh, yeah, kind of a double whammy, right? Um, the the uh, stress, stress already that we're all feeling, and and then the okay. additional horrible stress of uh, domestic violence. Uh, I imagine uh, the the pandemic and uh, the things we're trying to do to to physically distance. Does that affect how you how you help people?
2: Yeah, you know it's interesting because if you think about some of the facts related to domestic violence. Um, some of the common tactics that an abuser might use is about power and control, and, and they'll often isolate survivors and victims from their family and friends so that they don't have that kind of support system. And so you match that up with social distancing and, um, you know, all those things, and it really creates a nightmare for somebody who really needs to reach out and get support from their community. Um, some other facts and dynamics about domestic violence. You know, there's constant surveillance and control of activities, and when somebody's working from home now, you know, for example, um, it sure gives easy access for an abuser to monitor and and watch and keep track of every type of behavior. Um, You know, we had um, a client recently who was told by our abuser how much she could eat, how many squares of toilet paper she could use and all of that. And it really was related to the escalation of some of the COVID dynamics, but it was just um, made worse with the domestic violence, you know, tactics that were being used in the home already. Hmm.
0: Uh, I suppose suppose the the good news, if you can call it that, the the fact that CAPS is busy, it is um, survivors are reaching out.
2: Yeah, absolutely. We've definitely, um, you know, we anticipated an increase. And again, it's really unfortunate that we have had an increase. In fact, some of the statistics about our services, we compared last year the same time over the course of the four months that we've kind of been really engaging in this pandemic and the increase in services. And last year, um, we compared March, April, and June of last year and March, April, and June of this year. And with the crisis calls, the calls for help on our 24-hour support line, we have an increase of 110%. So we've had over 3,500 calls in that time frame. And we have an increase in our outreach clients, clients who aren't using shelter, but just calling in for supportive services. And our casework sessions are up 42%. Our therapy sessions are up. And our... Our shelter clients, the number of individuals that are staying in our shelter, um, that uh, is nearing 150, over 60%, and the nights in shelter are approaching 3,000 nights in shelter, which is up 46%. So when we compare those kinds of things, yes, it's a little bit overwhelming to think of the services that are needed, but at the same time, we've been so excited to be able to provide those services. Um, And with the telehealth resources and different things, we're able to continue to provide assistance with protective orders online, safety planning, housing support, and our 24-hour sexual assault advocacy, we're able to continue to provide as well. So, you know, it took us a minute to kind of get situated and be able to provide services in the midst of this pandemic, but we have been able to maintain confidential services and um, really provide safety, um, shelter, therapy, and support to a lot of clients over the last several months.
0: Do you see those l- levels pretty steady, the services you're offering at that, that a high, high level there? Um, do you, was it, this all began, of course, in March, a shelter in place, and then things have eased, and now who knows what's going to happen? Has, mm-hmm. has it all been right. pretty steady through that? Or have, you, have you seen fluctuations?
2: Um, you know, the, the, the kind of the shelter in place, there was a little lull before the storm, there was a week or two and we thought, Hmm, I wonder how people are going to reach out to us because, you know, it's difficult if you're at home with your abuser to make a phone call, you know, a lot of individuals will go to work and call us or go to a friend's house or leave and, you know, call us from the grocery store, things like that. And, um, when you're when you're with your abuser, you're in your house, you have no excuse to go out. You've already been to the grocery store. There's nowhere else open. Um, it's been difficult um, for them to get creative to reach out. But after that first week or two, I mean, we've just seen a continued increase. And I'll be honest, the last couple of weeks, I thought we'd plateau, and it just continues to increase. So we're gearing up and continuing to be prepared for the long haul. Mm.
0: I wonder what you would say. You know, might be somebody listening. Uh, you know, hey, they got a lady on from CAPSA, and what? And maybe, maybe I've got a problem at home, right? To so it, what, what would you say to that that person? It's because I, I think there's probably some fear about reaching out.
2: Yeah, you know there is, and I think one thing I've mentioned already is that our services are confidential. Um, all of our services at CAPSA are free, confidential, available in Spanish. Um, Far-reaching, we help cash and Rich County, and we can also provide support and referrals if you're not in the direct area. Our hotline is 24 hours, so I would say please call us. If there's something going on or you know somebody that needs some help, please call us, and we'll help you get connected with an expert to be able to help you navigate your situation, even in the midst of this. um, We've gotten pretty creative and helped a lot of people. We do have an emergency shelter. And our advocacy and support services can help with things like safety planning, um, assistance with protective orders, and and just helping you figure out what your next step is. Uh, We have specialized therapy services. So um, even if this pandemic is triggering different kinds of um, experiences and you're a survivor of abuse, we want to help you with that. And we also are creating online workshops and different ways to be supportive. And we have um, at CAPSA.org, we have an online and confidential link where you can request help there, or you can call our main office. It's a hotline, again, 24 hours, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. And our number is 435-753-2500. And, um, again, you can call at any time. And I would just just hope that... um, Knowing that it's a confidential service and that we're getting lots of calls from people who are in unique situations because of this pandemic, we've really been able to accomplish quite a bit in helping people seek safety and have a lot of hope in their situation.
0: So we'll give the, the, those contact points a little later in the program as well. Um, so that's CAPSA.org, CAPSA.org and 435-753-2500, 435-753-2500. Uh, what would you say to friends, family, acquaintances? What uh, what are some signs to look for, and what what should what should people you know surrounding somebody who's in an abusive situation do?
2: Yeah, that's great. Well, you know, the first thing is really start by believing, and and don't be afraid to bring up the subject. I think it's really important to um, if you're noticing something or somebody reaches out to you. It can be a little alarming, or you might not know exactly what to say or what to do. But don't be afraid to just start navigating the subject and offering your help and support that you're believing what they're going through. Because a lot of um, a lot of victims don't feel like people are even going to believe what they're going to say. Sometimes it's horrific, and sometimes it just seems like it could be explained away somehow. And that's really part of the myth of domestic violence and sexual assault. So just really acknowledging their situation, validate their experience. Um, Let people know if somebody's reaching out to you, let them know that you're concerned for their physical and emotional safety, and um, especially if they have children, that they're going to really need some additional support for that. Um, Let them know that there's help available. Um, Sometimes they don't realize that there are professionals and organizations that can help them take their next step. And then, you know, one of the challenges I think with Um, domestic violence and sexual assault is that individuals have choice in the matter, and timing can be very difficult, and sometimes it takes an individual a few different attempts to decide that they want to leave a relationship or reach out for help. Um, And, you know, we have to just be able to respect their choice, but never, um, if somebody doesn't heed your advice or or wishes to reach out for help. Just make sure that they know you're still available in the future when they are ready to reach out for help. Um, The other thing I think is essential for community members is to just be informed, to learn and understand what domestic violence is, how it impacts families, what is sexual violence, and how does that impact individuals and families and communities. we really need to not minimize the impact, but assist people with getting confidential resources that can help them um, find safety and and know that they're not alone and really get healing.
0: Um, so uh, victims of, uh, survivors of, um, you know, sexual abuse. Um, uh, can imagine might have a fear, to, am I going to have to go to the police? I'm going to have to go through that. What's what's the answer there? Do you mm-hmm. contact Caps and you could work through that, I guess?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, every, every situation is unique and some individuals do want to move forward with reporting to law enforcement, an incident that's happened, um, you know, or multiple incidents. But But some people don't, and their first step is really just reaching out to get some therapeutic support or some medical care or, you know, different things like that. So, yeah, I would encourage anyone who's seeking help to reach out um, to CAPS, and we can help you figure out what your step is and and what professionals and what are your rights and and just kind of understanding um, the legal ramifications of some of the choices that you have um, in reaching out for help.
0: Have there been any uh, changes in, in uh, I guess, reporting rules or reporting uh, guidelines? I know second half of this program we're, we're going to be talking with uh, someone from USU Office of Equity and the, and the you know, Title IX rules and for, for those on campus, but I wonder about in the community.
2: Uh, no, I wouldn't say there's any changes. I mean, individuals definitely have the right. There's, there's laws and regulations around um, if you're underage about reporting and mandatory reporting laws. But um, adults absolutely have the choice in moving forward to navigate um, reporting um, through the VAWA Act. There's, there's really a protection for survivors to have the right and the choice to move forward and report as they, as they feel comfortable. Um, so we really want to support and inform survivors of what, what steps are available to them. And then really connect them with appropriate community professionals, whether it be law enforcement um, or additional community resources like the university or different things, depending on, you know, if they're a student or if they're not a student um, and those types of things. So I would say there hasn't really anything been changed specifically like the university is navigating now.
0: Hmm. If you just joined us, we're talking with Misty Hewitt from uh, CAPSA. Uh, remind us again your position there at CAPSA.
2: Yeah, I'm the social service director. So, currently, I oversee all of the different case management um, programs that we have here, um, our housing and social services.
0: Uh, Wonderful. Uh, And again, capsa.org, capsa.org. So, uh, this struck me. This is just a brief paragraph on on capsa.org on the site there. uh, capsa can help you if you feel unsafe in your relationship or struggling to heal from abuse. The abuse could be current or happen when you were a child. And then this one, this struck me. This sentence: abuse manifests itself in many ways, including physically, emotionally, psychologically, financially, and sexually. And it goes on to say, caps can help you no matter what type of abuse. What if you talk about that? Uh, we we tend to think about sexual abuse, right? Uh, there mm-hmm. there are many forms of abuse.
2: Absolutely. I think sometimes that's, that's why it's important to be informed about what are the dynamics about domestic violence. Um, I think stereotypically people think of it just as being physical abuse, but but particularly as, as we've talked about in relation to the pandemic, some of the coercive and controlling behaviors are around um, controlling somebody's activities in their home, restricting rules and behavior um, monitoring and controlling financial um, things uh, and really the psychological and emotional abuse of isolating somebody from their family and friends, um, those types of things, um, you know, it's, it's, it's extremely dynamic and a lot of times there's a lot of overlay where there's, you know, there is some type of uh, physical abuse, but maybe the primary abuse is emotional and psychological. Um, which can really impede um, somebody's ability to feel confident in recognizing that in a relationship. You know, if they've been told over and over and over lies about who they are or about what's okay in a relationship or what's not okay in a relationship, it can be very confusing um, for a victim to really feel confident taking a step out of that kind of abusive
0: relationship. Again from the website capsa.org, one in three women and one in seven men will experience abuse at the hands of a partner That's, that's pretty stark
2: it is, it is stark and we just we don't want to believe it in our community. you know one in three in our community are experiencing something like this and um, and that's, it, it's, it's a real dynamic and it's really difficult for people to know you know how, how do they how do they free themselves from this? And it's really difficult because most people are in relationships because uh, for a reason. They don't just get into an abusive relationship. You know, they, they find a partner that they connect with and there's all kinds of reasons why they start that relationship. And then slowly tension can build and, and then um, and it's hard to see, wow, how did this relationship begin? And I didn't see these kinds of things, you know? that cycle of abuse where there's tension building and then there might even be some kind of incident and it could be explained away by a victim because of the reconciliation that the abuser might try to convince them, oh, I'm so sorry, that will never happen again. And then there will be a period of you know, calm, we call it the honeymoon stage. Um, but then in, in this cycle of abuse, tension will build again. And sometimes this cycle of abuse can happen hour by hour. Sometimes it takes over the course of a year or two years to build this tension back up and another incident might happen. So it's extremely difficult to um, to just say, oh, you know, well, if you're being abused, you should just leave your relationship or it's easy. But it's it's really not. And that's genuinely why the experts at CAPSA are trained to be able to help um victims navigate some of the barriers that they might be experiencing to feel like they can safely leave a relationship. We know that um, when a victim decides to leave their abuser, it's actually the most dangerous time for them. We know that risk and um, danger increase. And so that's why we have the supportive services that we have at CAPSA to be able to help them. Um, safely leave a relationship and obtain resources to be able to do that so that they can stay independent
0: so you would suggest that somebody maybe the first step contact capsa right they, they can help you with a with a plan to leave or yeah absolutely
2: the- our caseworkers are great at establishing just an action plan that's specialized for that individual to know what are realistic first steps for them to link them with resources whether it's they need to prepare financially to leave a relationship or if it's just dangerous enough that they need law enforcement's assistance right away um, or if they have, you know, plans with family or reaching out for support to find somewhere else to live or just really navigating information like legal resources and different things like that. I
0: wonder if you talk about uh, healing, of course, that's the goal, right? This, these are traumatic experiences, uh, first of all, I, I think you would say healing is possible. And what, what, what are the steps?
2: Absolutely. Well, I think healing is an individual journey. Um, but between the professionals and the therapists here at CAPSA, I think that um, we, we do create individual treatment plans with somebody who's seeking help. And, you know, nobody's journey is the same. And um, trauma is unique and kind of a personal fingerprint. And so, um, really, you need an individual plan to know how to work toward healing. You know, some people feel very empowered um, and are able to move forward after leaving a relationship or um, finding their own independent housing or, you know, gaining a support system um, of other survivors. And then others might have some additional issues that they're navigating. Maybe some mental health support is needed. Or maybe there's some disabilities or something like that that they might need additional support with. So, so really the, the recovery, um, it's a journey and really unique to each individual. Um, there's no one, two, three step to navigate and heal from traumatic events like domestic violence and sexual assault. And I think it's important for victims and for our community and family members to recognize that um, that it's, it's not a simple process, it's dynamic and, um, and it's human. And so, you know, there's things in life that can add to and take away from somebody's healing journey. Um, so, finding a professional to help support someone through um, healing and domestic violence or sexual assault, I think, is really essential
0: i took a, a tour of capsso uh, oh this is about a oh, year or two ago and i was struck mm-hmm. by um you know the the uh, services targeted to specific areas, minority communities uh the one that struck me was rural areas it that, that hadn't occurred to me that uh, you know situations would be different if you live in a very rural area
2: yeah yeah we have a we have a caseworker and a therapist that's Specially trained and um, available for our Rich County and some of the smaller communities that Cash um, interacts with. And you're absolutely right. I mean, in a small town, everybody knows everything, right? And so um, there's different dynamics there um, that it's kind of unique building a relationship in an even even smaller community than Cash County. And so. Um, Working with the law enforcement there and the community leaders within um, Rich County in particular, um, we've really, really appreciated our developing relationships up there to be able to provide support for their community and build trust there, knowing that our services are confidential. That's a real important part for rural communities to know that services are confidential. Um, and and that they're far-reaching, that we can come there. You know, sometimes in the winter, it's difficult for anybody to come back and forth, you know, up to the, the Bear Lake and Rich County area. And so we're kind of excited that we are going to be able to really expand our reach with our telehealth services. Um, you know, we with this pandemic, we learned a whole lot quickly, but now I'm really excited to see how we're going to be able to continue to offer services to people who... Maybe don't have transportation, or you know, don't have access in ways of actually coming to our physical facility. And now we can come to them and provide the support and resources through technology. So I think that's going to help us um, continue to provide support in our rural communities that we um, didn't plan on being a benefit from learning through this pandemic. So that's kind of exciting, also
0: yeah so some of those silver linings, right? We're learning things as we're going mm-hmm. through the, the pandemic. Uh, and I guess we're all in a specialized area now. we're all we're all in the pandemic, right? so it is mm-hmm. it is good to hear that people are reaching out. Um, so uh, I don't know what you'd say about helping capSA. The CAPSA, I, I would I assume needs help. I'd, I see on the uh, capsa.org there's a tab for give help.
2: Yes, absolutely. We um, we are. In the throes of just um, really just navigating how to obtain resources and that's financial resources and time resources and that volunteer resources, um, we really do value volunteers. Our, our organization can't operate without the help of the community volunteers. And so one way that you can help is by um, engaging with our community, um, our volunteer coordinator, and um, they can help you figure out the best way that you want to get plugged into CAPSA. Um, there's lots of ways that you can help and volunteer at CAPSA. And the other is financially. Um, it is difficult right now. Some of our fundraising events are a little bit more difficult because of the pandemic, and so we really are in need of financial support. Um, there's no way that we can provide shelter. Um, to this many individuals in our community without financial support. We're the only no-turnaway shelter in Utah. That means if we have a local resident who's in need, we're not going to turn them away just because our shelter is full. And believe me, our shelter is full. And um, so we're having to find creative, safe options for individuals who are fleeing. And so we really do need financial support as well.
0: And you go to CAPSA.org to, to find out ways to, to help. Uh, that's also Absolutely. the place to, to go if you need help. Uh, so, uh, And give us the phone number again. It's
2: 435 753 2500. And you can also reach us at CAPSA.org, where there's lots of information and confidential links for services, more information about um, getting help if you're a survivor or you know someone who's in need. Um, and you can also learn how to engage with some of our volunteer and our donations there as well.
0: And understand that that line is uh, the the support line is uh, 24 hours, right?
2: Yep, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. We're open all the time. You're not going to call CAPS and somebody won't be available. All right, We're always going to be here.
0: Wonderful. Well, thanks for all you do in the community. Uh, we've been talking with uh, Misty Hewitt from CAPS. Thanks so much. Thank you. I'm Hank, and I listen to Utah Pup Radio via the radio in Zion National Park and also online at upr.org.
1: This episode of Access Utah is made possible with support from the Utah Women's Giving Circle, a grassroots community with everyday philanthropists raising the questions and raising the funds to empower Utah women and girls. Information available at utawomensgivingcircle.com.
3: I'm Hillary Renshaw. I'm the Title IX Coordinator in the Office of Equity at USU, and our main role is to respond to um, any reports we receive regarding sexual misconduct and discrimination. Um, In addition to that, we provide prevention and education. We have three prevention specialists on the Logan campus that specifically do education and trainings for students, faculty, and staff. Um, And then we have four investigators in our office that will respond to reports of sexual misconduct or discrimination, and they um, will investigate that information. In addition to that, we have a supportive measure specialist, and that individual will um, provide supportive measures, which we define as uh, academic support, no contact orders, um, certain safety measures we put in place, and that person can really help an individual who has experienced sexual misconduct be able to get through and be successful with their education. So, there's those are kind of the three primary roles is this prevention role, um, supportive measures and providing support to individuals, and then offering um, a route for investigations for individuals who have been impacted by sexual misconduct.
0: So you're a Title IX coordinator, what uh, what was essentially your role?
3: So my role generally is to uh, make sure the university is in compliance with Title IX regulations, which there are now new Title IX regulations that have just come out. Um, and it's to make sure that we are we're complying with that. Um, and I really do I help with prevention efforts. I help make sure, supportive measures are appropriately instituted, and then I help oversee the investigations that are occurring at the school.
0: Can you tell us about those new Title IX uh, rules that have come out?
3: Yes. So the new rules, I would say, really focus on two general areas. The first is really making sure the institution is providing adequate support for individuals who have been impacted by sexual misconduct. And, And just so you know, we define sexual misconduct as sexual harassment, sexual assault, dating violence, domestic violence, and stalking. So those are the the behaviors that are prohibited. Um, And what those new regulations say is, you know, someone that's been impacted by sexual misconduct, you need to provide support so they can finish their education. Um, Thankfully, our school has been doing an excellent job at that. We hired a new prevention specialist, oh, sorry, a supportive measure specialist um, over a year ago, and we have really focused on providing support to those individuals. Um, and it's something I think that we'll just continue to really focus on and, and do what we're doing. Um, recognizing that really at the end of the day, what we want is for individuals to be successful in their academics, to be able to get their degree still and, and get through their schooling despite, despite what's happened. Um, and then the new, the, the other emphasis that the new regulations focus on. Is really um, emphasizing due process, so that's making sure that there is an investigation in place that allows in- individuals the right to tell their story, to present witnesses, to pre- present evidence, and be able to say, like, I was able to to present what happened in this investigation, and then the Office of Equity determines, according to the evidence, if if it happened or it didn't. Um, And so that's also something that we've always focused on is making sure that each side has a right to tell their story. Um, The big change in this is that there is now a hearing associated with every investigation, a live hearing. Um, And so that is something that we are starting to kind of conceptualize of how we implement that in the most trauma-informed ways. Um, knowing that that is something that we know will be um, difficult for individuals. Mm.
0: Are, the, are these uh, regulations, this is uh, uh, across all institutions, this is not specifically with the, the agreement USU has with the Justice Department?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. So, yes, yeah, so we, we have a settlement or a resolution agreement with the Department of Justice that will last the next three years, and that really focuses on um, mostly on training and prevention efforts that we we've largely already started doing. This is completely separate from that. So the new Title IX regulations. Um, every campus that receives receives federal funding is required to institute these new regulations by August. So everyone at this point, all the all these um, schools are are trying to figure out kind of you know how do we quickly get in compliance with these and, and make changes that are necessary. And I think, again, it is good because our school, I think, largely was focusing on making sure we were emphasizing supportive measures and, and due process already.
0: One of the the, the, the findings, I guess, the Justice Department that um, saw as a problem was that, that maybe departments weren't coordinating and, and maybe mm-hmm. patterns of sexual misconduct were not being seen. Is that uh, being corrected?
3: Yes. Yeah, so, something that I think has been really beneficial is we have a new, um, just a recording uh, database system where now everything that comes to our office is always recorded. And obviously, that was occurring before, but it's in one, housed in one database system that allows us to really track trends. Um, and myself and the executive director of our office, um, Allison Adams-Perlac, she and I will meet And we'll talk through, like, here are the trends we've seen. So we're able to pull the data and say, here's trends we see in a certain location. Here's trends we see with certain individuals. Here's trends um, we're seeing that we need to make sure we're addressing systematically. And that's been a really positive change that's happened. Um, There's also just really good collaboration amongst the different departments on campus. So, you know, we're regularly meeting with individuals from Student Affairs and collectively deciding what what appropriate action is, meeting with people from human resources, um, with, with people from athletics and really taking this collaborative approach of we're all on the same team here and collectively we all have to be responsible for addressing sexual misconduct and making sure it really is this community effort of how do we as an institution and as a community, you know, make sure we're addressing it and also make sure we're not tolerating it in any way. Mm.
0: Uh, can you talk? You mentioned uh, uh, trauma-informed uh, process. Maybe talk a little bit about that, and, and maybe starting with, uh, you know, maybe concerns from from some who have been victimized, uh, who, who may have a concern: or, are is the institution going to take this seriously? Is it is mm-hmm. this is this going to matter? That was one of the you know s- some of the complaints uh, before with with USU and other institutions.
3: Yeah, and so I think we've just really changed a lot of our process to make sure everything we're doing, we're really speaking to the fact that we take this seriously and we care about these individuals. So we contact people almost always within 24 hours. If it's on the weekend, obviously it might be a little bit longer, but we we are immediately contacting people when we receive information that they may have been impacted by this. Um, and in our communications, we, we tell them you don't have to interact with us. It's up to you because we, don't, we also don't want to put people in a situation to have to tell their story if they're not ready. So it really is this communication of we care. We have resources and ways that we can help you. We want to start helping you quickly. But again, it's up to you. We want to empower you to know what's available, to know what your resources are, and then to choose them when you're ready to choose them. Um, and if people tell us, you know, we're, I'm not ready to engage with your office, we tell them, You can come back at any time. We're here. We just want you to know we're here. We want you to know what we can do to help you. Um, And please just come back whenever, if you're ready and when you're ready. Um, And that's so important to us. We really just, we try to be um, just as, I guess, soft in our language in the sense of we understand that someone has been through something really traumatic and we don't in any way want to re-traumatize anyone by the way that we're approaching them or reaching out or um talking to them after they've experienced
0: this so and, uh, I guess starting at the beginning of, the, of a process un- unfortunately you know someone's been uh you, you know victimized by um you know sexual uh, trauma you know sexual violence or or maybe it's uh discrimination or sexual harassment what what's the starting point where where do where does someone go
3: yeah so. Someone can come to our office. Obviously, we're operating a little bit different um, with COVID-19. So we will, at this point, we direct people to our website, to our phone number, to our email. So someone can go to equity.usu.edu. They can email me at Title nine at usu.edu. They can call us at um, 797-1266. And basically what we'll do is we'll say are you safe right now? And ask that question. And if not, we'll put things into place immediately to get them safe. Um, We'll ask them, do you need support to be successful academically? Can we help right now with school assignments? Are you getting behind? Can we help you um, maybe delay some of these so you can be successful this semester? And then we'll give them their reporting options and say, are you interested in pursuing an investigation? Do you want to work with police? Um, Do you want us to connect you with police? Are you interested in a no-contact order where the two individuals aren't able to commute, will interact on campus to keep them both safe? Um, It's just basically providing individuals immediately with options um, and making sure they're connected to resources. So we have our counseling and psychological services on campus, and then we have our sexual assault and anti-violence information office that offers support specifically to individuals who've been impacted by sexual violence and we try to connect them immediately to have if if wanted therapy services and advocacy services.
0: Uh, so you talked earlier about, uh, you know, some changes that have in regulations and such. Um, would anything change specifically with, with reporting, to, uh, I guess, to, to help people uh, feel, feel better about reporting or make it easier or or anything in that area?
3: Yes, I think the biggest change is just the regulations really focus on making sure information is known to individuals who may have experienced sexual misconduct. So really a big change we're making is just making sure the information about where to report and how to report is really visible to our students and our community so that they feel empowered to say, I know where I can go. I know who's there, and I know what office can help me if I experience this. And so we're just really working right now to make that um, more visible and to show, you know, it's up to you. You're empowered to choose, but you are aware of the information because we've provided it um, very clearly across the board and, and made sure that you are educated on what offices can help you on campus.
0: What are, uh, from your experience in the office, what, what are concerns of people coming forward to to report? What are, what are fears or concerns?
3: Hmm. I think um, something that we're just always aware of is individuals feeling like when they share their story, maybe not having control over that anymore. Um, and something we've just tried to em- really emphasize in our office is making sure people are very aware of what is required and what that looks like if someone were to report and where their information is shared and how. Um, I think just concerns about having to interact with this person on campus still and their safety um, as they're on campus. And we address that by, you know, if they wanna connect with police and talk about protective orders or talk about no contact orders with us. Um, I I think just generally, it's just fear of the unknown of a process that, you know, they've never engaged with. They've obviously just um, experienced this really traumatic event, and they're trying to heal from that um, and then also engage in a process that is unknown to them and um, that, you know, require, it requires certain things of participating and providing information and things like that. And it's something we just try to be really mindful of as we're interacting with individuals.
0: I think uh, the I don't know the current statistics but I know it has been you know a, a certain uh, percentage of uh, people don't report what would you say mm-hmm. to, to what are the advantages what wh- why should someone come forward and report
3: mm. I think just um I think first of all recognizing that if someone engages with our office they don't have to report so they can come to our office and say what are options if I were to you know, say that I have experienced one of these things, what are my options? And I think I just, first of all, recognizing that, that people can engage with us without choosing to tell their whole story. Um, but I think just recognizing that it's hard, it's scary to report that it's hard and that some people don't choose that route, and that's okay. It's It really is empowering people at a minimum to know, and that's what we really want to emphasize is, We just want people to know what options are available and to allow them to choose it when they're ready. Um, And we find that oftentimes people will engage with our sexual assault and anti-violence office, otherwise known as SAVI, that they go there and that SAVI is what we call a confidential resource. So that means they don't share information with anyone else at the institution, um, at the university. And some people like they are able to engage with that office and that. That allows them to heal, and that is what they want. Um, And, again, I think it's just recognizing everyone has their own path that they take, and everyone should be empowered to choose their path and empowered to choose what they want. Um, And, of course, we we want people to know about reporting just because we want them to know that there are additional additional, um, paths that they can take if they engage with our office. But there's no right way, and there's no uh, one-size-fits-all. And I think that's just knowing individuals that have experienced um, sexual violence often feel shame or guilt, and we in no way want to add to that. Uh, We just want, we really want people to be able to heal. Hmm.
0: Uh, It sounds like I I shouldn't be framing this necessarily as reporting, but we're encouraging people to come forward and and Mm -hmm. avail themselves of resources. They're they're resources that that can help, right?
3: Yes, and I think recognizing reporting, you know, that obviously is something that individuals can do. Everyone can report. You can report for yourself. You can report if you have heard a friend experiences this. Um, Anyone can come forward and say, I want the the university to know about this information. And, of course, the more information we have, we obviously want that information. That's something good because we feel like we can take action on it, Um, but I do want to, and that's what I'm trying to emphasize, is that this idea that someone can come forward and talk with us without kind of that maybe sometimes scary, you know, idea of like, but if I do that, then I have to tell my whole story, because I think sometimes that creates a barrier for people coming to us, and the, you know, the least amount of barriers that we can have, I think, the better for individuals. Mm -hmm.
0: So the, the individual sounds like retains a lot of control over how much of the story to tell, what to do at what what time, kind of the timeline as well, uh, the things move forward.
3: Yes. And we tell people when they engage with our office, we say, you know, you don't have to tell us anything. You can tell us your whole story. Um, and we we also tell them, you know, here's here's what happens if you share your information. And here's, Um, the different paths you can go down, here's the different things the institution may have to do. Um, And it really is all about being as transparent as possible to, okay, if you share, here's what could happen. Do you still want to share with us? Um, And, of course, again, we always um, hope that individuals will share so that we can address what has happened and take appropriate action, but also knowing we want to empower the person to choose and we want them to understand what's going to happen if they choose to tell their story. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, um, Maybe you can outline again what what, uh, some of the resources are that are available to uh, the person uh, who's been traumatized, been a victim of, I guess, any of the range of sexual misconduct.
3: Yes. So um, resources on our campus where individuals can receive therapy or counseling, those resources are what we call confidential resources. So that would be the Counseling um, and Psychological Services at USU. There's also SAVI, which is the Sexual Assault and Anti-Violence Office at USU. They offer therapy services and advocacy to individuals. Um, Obviously, the Office of Equity, our office, we provide what we call supportive measures, which is um, academic help, no contact orders, financial aid appeals. Um, And then we also provide reporting options and access to investigations. Um, There's the USU Police Department, um, where individuals can also report and also receive information about protective orders. Um, And those are the really big resources that individuals can access quickly. And I would note all of those are still um, offering services, most of them remotely, but they all can offer immediate services, even, um, despite people working remotely. Mm. Uh,
0: you mentioned the, the, the top, uh, COVID-19, uh, how, how has COVID-19 changed uh, things, uh, made it harder for people to, to, to access services?
3: We have seen that, um, individuals are still reporting, which I think is encouraging. Um, we are able to offer services, um, just as much as we normally would. Obviously, we're meeting in a virtual setting, but we're still offering the same supportive measures. We're still offering the same um, sort of investigation option, and so those services have all remained the same for us. Um, we, I'm sure, as you've seen, the number of domestic violence cases in Utah have increased reported. Um, to police I don't we haven't really seen that, but we are trying to educate individuals that if they are experiencing or have experienced domestic violence or dating violence um, during this time knowing the numbers are rising that we we can help you with um, academics and the person that is um, you know the perpetrator doesn't have to be connected to the university in order for us to do that. So that's just a message that I really want to get out is, Um, Individuals that may be experiencing that now, we can help with academic support if needed at the Office of Equity.
0: Mm, Yeah. Good to know that uh, the the service is still available. And, of course, as you mentioned, uh, yes, we have heard that uh, that's one of the unfortunate, uh, I guess, byproducts of uh, physical distancing, right? definitely uh, spikes in domestic violence. Um, so what, what about, uh, friends or family members or acquaintances or, you know, coworkers, bosses, uh, of someone who is experiencing, uh, sexual violence or sexual harassment? What, uh, what would you say to them?
3: Yeah, I would, I, we encourage those individuals to report again, and anyone can go to equity.usu.edu and file a report. Um, they can provide the information about what they know is happening, we will always reach out to the individual that is experiencing it if we have that information and provide them all the resources. Um, And I think just knowing that individual has a a choice as to whether they engage or not, um, but at a minimum being able to offer them the resources and then maybe saying, you know, if it is in a university setting in any way, um, if we're not able to do something because maybe the person doesn't choose to engage with us, we can say, you know what, we really need to go in and do a training. Let's go in and do a training about sexual harassment in the workplace, about appropriate boundaries, um, about, you know, those type of things. We also go in on a separate note and do trainings about implicit bias and, um, you know, discrimination and, and just make sure people are educated because I think that it's so important that as much as possible, we're able to prevent behaviors and we're able to do trainings and educate individuals so that they understand what is appropriate and can hopefully change behavior and, and act appropriately.
0: By the way, uh, you know, the students aren't on campuses right now, um, but, but I guess if you're a USU uh, student or employee, you, you, you can still access these services?
3: Yes, yes. So they are, we are, completely running the same as usual other, other than meeting virtually, so all of, all of our resources are, are available. We recognize that students will likely, you know, that are, they are planning on coming back in the fall and will be students living on campus, and so we recognize too that, um, you know, during that time, individuals may, you know, individuals that experience this, we just want them to know that we are still available for them um, to access resources.
0: Uh, anything else you'd like to say on this topic?
3: I think just um, really, I'm. I have probably said this over and over again, so it's probably getting tedious. But just, we really do want to empower individuals to um, choose um, and know about the resources that are available to them. And so, I appreciate you allowing me to be on this. Um, this program, just because I think the more that we can message to individuals that we're here, that we can out- offer support, we can connect people to resources and we can allow them to know the options available to them and then let them choose and let them um, just choose how they engage with our process. I think the more we can get that message out and let friends and family know, too, that you know, if you're concerned about someone and you don't know necessarily what to do, that we are an option too of, of allowing us to reach out to that individual and make sure we can share with them the resources available.
0: Uh, so, give us once again the contact points, uh, the, the numbers, or where, where, where people can find information or or contact uh, Office of Equity.
3: Yes, yeah, so you can learn more about the Office of Equity at equity.usu.edu. You can learn more about resources generally related to sexual misconduct at sexualrespect.usu.edu. Um, you can call us at 435-797-1266 or email me at Title nine at USU.edu. All
0: right, we've been talking with uh, Hillary Renshaw, who's Title IX Coordinator with USU's Office of Equity. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much. Have a good day. This episode of Access Utah is made possible with support from the Utah Women's Giving Circle, a grassroots community with everyday philanthropists raising the questions and raising the funds to empower Utah women and girls. Information available at utahwomensgivingcircle.com. Thanks for
0: listening. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. This is KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, Utah Public Radio.
3: Oh, wait, you're listening?
0: Okay. All right. Okay.
1: All right. You're listening, listening. to Radio Lab. Lab.
0: Radio Lab. From WNYC. See? Yeah. Jad.
4: Hey, hey, how's it going? Good. I'm Jad Abumrad. This is Radio Lab. Pat Walters, senior editor, is going to start us off. Okay. Okay. So you and Molly had this idea to uh, do an episode about the 1918 flu. Mm-hmm. And whenever I get into something historical, I I go I go to the newspaper archives. So I decided to just like go I just like go to the New York Times archive. Mm-hmm. Start in October, which was. The, like the peak of the second wave of the 1918 flu, um, gotcha. so sort of like people are talking about how things are opening up again, and like we might have a we might have a second spike of the, of the coronavirus, and like what people are afraid of is that what happened in 1918 will happen now, which is it was pretty bad when it emerged in the winter of 1918 in the beginning of the year, uh-huh. and then it kind of went away. And then everyone was like, "Oh, it's gone," and went back to normal. And and that fall, it, it spiked, and like most of the people who died in that flu died in this second fall. I didn't know that. That's I actually honestly didn't know that that's the trajectory it took. So, yeah. So you go to the New York Times in the fall of 1918, and uh, uh, and I remember struggling to find the flu. Mm. It's all World War I. The front page of the paper on October 1st, 1918 has huge, like, 20-point font headline across the whole page. Bulgaria quits the war. Turkey may follow. Uh, war's fiercest fighting on Cambrai front. I don't know what these things mean. I don't understand World War One enough to know what any of this means, but it's just, like, all war. French advance on every front. Every day. British take many towns. All fall. Turkey also seeks peace. Austria seeks to quit war. Page two, page three. USS Tampa. There's little maps. There's profiles of officers and different units. What they were doing in the war, where they were killed. 692 casualties. You have entire articles, which are just names of all the people killed. And you keep going. Page five, six, seven. Pretty much all war stories. You know, as you get into the low teens you get the flu stories. Just little briefs saying like, St. Louis closed its businesses or the health commissioner has decided not to close the schools, even though everyone's saying you should close the schools. Mm. Or like, the flu is in China now. And that's the whole story. It's just like... (laughs) Really? (laughs) Flu in China.